BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, after the, after the, you know, Robertson and then the, the Scherzer trades, you know, when I did a, a, a media debrief, you know, one of the things I, I highlighted there is that going into 2024, we, we will likely not have the same odds as we did going into 2022 and 2023. And when I speak of those odds, what, what I'm talking about is, you know, the last week of, of spring training, you know, a lot of the different, you know, uh, you know, experts or uh, sports books, whatever you want to call it, put out projections on over-unders. And so, you know, going into 2022, you know, our, our you know, kind of our band of, of predictions from whatever it is, whether it's inside of Vegas or whether it's, you know, The Athletic or ESPN or Fox or, or all, you know, The Post and all of the, you know, the onlookers that are making predictions – you know, our band in going into 2022 is somewhere between 86 and 90. And then our band going into 2023 this season was 88 to 95. Um, and so what we're trying to say is that we might not have those exact same odds going into 2020, uh, going into 2024, and you might not see another, another record payroll. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not a big fan of talking about what our payroll is going to be publicly and, and things. There's a, there's a strategy component to that. But at the end of the day, we're going to put a competitive team on the field in 2024. Our players are here to win. We're going to expect to win. Um, and so it was just wanting to be very candid um, with kind of how we were going to approach the, the, the 2024 season. And you're going to see – more younger, um, more younger players kind of integrated, have integrated in our farm system, push their way into the major leagues. So that, that, you know, that's kind of our outlook for, for the 2024 season. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here 
on this Monday, September the 4th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And to be showing up on podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingBetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingBetsPodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, TalkingBetsNoG. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network as well as RisingApple.com. Well, happy Labor Day to everybody. I hope you're enjoying your long Labor Day weekend, the unofficial end of summer. With that comes September baseball. Unfortunately, we are again another edition of extended garbage time of the Talking Mets podcast. But I will tell you, Mets are giving us some things to talk about. So we have a show here on this holiday weekend where we can, you know, talk about a few interesting topics. Of course, the big news this week, the front office shakeup. Mets really shook things up in player development. We're still talking about the Pete Alonso and the trading of Pete Alonso and the horror of Pete Alonso getting traded. I mean, we're going to put some perspective into that. We're always talking about the future, the minor leagues, the prospects. Important, especially now, especially since the trade deadline. But are there a couple of gems on the Mets roster? Oh, we know about Mauricio. He made his debut. But are there some other gems that we're not talking about that could help the Mets in 2024 on this roster? And we will round out the show with a little bit about Doc and Daryl. I know that's about a week late, but their numbers were retired and... I'll give you some quick on-the-way-out perspective on Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. So, you know the news by now. The Mets uh, decided to do some cleaning house on the player development front. Kevin Howard, the organization's director of player development, was a hitting coach after Chili Davis was fired a couple of years ago. Jeff Lebo, the director of pro player evaluation. They also fired their director of performance and director of baseball development. Without getting into the names, because I don't know if it really matters at this point, the Mets did a full shakeup of their player development pipeline. Not a surprise. We've talked about it on this show. For every McNeil, Alonzo, and guys like that, we've seen a number of players. And right now this year, you have to say that guys like Vientos and Beatty have been a big disappointment. And we'll see about Alvarez. Mauricio just you know, jammed into the scene this weekend with uh, a couple of big performances. So, you know, remains to be seen what else is out there. But... All these individuals, it appears, have been hired, some for a long time, for over a decade, uh, prior to Cohen ownership, prior to Billy Epler. And I think what you're seeing now with the Mets and what's going on is the inevitability of what was going to happen because of how Cohen came to be an owner. Now, we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating because it's important to understand where they're where they are, where they're going, and how difficult it has been over the last couple of years to do what the Mets are doing. Actually, quite historic. And I think that's the part for all those that criticize Cohen, for all those that criticize Epler, it's important to repeat where this came from. So Mets get their team sold right after the 2020 pandemic season. That sale doesn't go through until November 1st. So no offseason planning. I'm sure there was some sort of transition with the Wilpons, but I mean, honestly... With the pandemic, with all that was going on, with the sale, with the front office already being lean in certain areas, specifically analytics, um, you know, it's not a clean transition. So Cohen comes in, Sandy Alderson is a consultant, so to speak, president of baseball operations. He comes in to help get him approved. He helps him be the bridge to 
the old Mets, the Wilpon Mets, to whatever Cohen's vision is. And we all know what happened. GM comes on. A couple of weeks later, he gets pinched in an off-the-field incident. They bring in Zach Scott, his assistant, who was part of the team. He, uh, you know, it doesn't work out with Zach Scott. He winds up having off-the-field issues and gets fired. Then Epler comes in. Epler starts putting his own people in, but there's a lot of the the older uh, holdovers in the regime. Alderson's kind of there to see the transition. They can't hire a player baseball operations. That was the initial plan before Epler. So they settle with Epler. Sandy kind of comes and goes. And right now it's been Epler's show. And, you know, I listened to Epler yesterday on uh, MLB Network Radio with Duquette and Jim Bowden. And if you don't think Epler's going to be around a while and that Cohen's not charging him with at least on the GM front with the direction of the team, the big league roster, and a lot of the philosophies of what this organization is looking for, you're not paying attention. And, you know, let me make this clear before I even get into why this happened. Cohen has gone on record saying that Apple will be part of the hiring process for the president of baseball operations. Now, I still find it hard to believe, and and I'm not one of these David Stearns fan clubs type of people because, look, I don't know what to expect out of David Stearns. It's not like he's coming in with Theo Epstein's resume. I mean, he's coming in as a talented guy who did some nice things in Milwaukee, and we're acting like, you know, Bill Parcells is walking in the building. We're acting like uh, Branch Rickey's walking in the building. And and I don't even know, knowing how this whole setup where Cohen brought in Epler, and Epler's going to be working for somebody that he's helping pick, not exactly the most ideal scenario, I'll be honest. I'm not really crazy about it, but... That's because that's where the Mets are at. Everything has been for Cohen difficult because of the one overarching scenario that that's all their own doing. The Mets have wanted to compete and win at a high level while they build up the organization. So they had to kind of, at each juncture, have that overarching philosophy while they're retrofitting all the parts of the organization. What really should have been done, the thing should have been stripped down to the studs uh, they should have been bad for a couple of years while they figured out all this front office stuff, and away you go. Now, I give Cohen a lot of credit. That would have been the easy thing to do. Nobody would have criticized him for it. However, from a business perspective, from a brand perspective, you and I both know uh, not the way a new owner wants to come in being known as the Mets, of the, the, the process version of the Mets where they tank for three, four, five years. Now, things might be glorious a half a decade away, but that's not how he wanted to do it. He wanted to get to that point, but he also wanted to have a competitive big league roster using his money with his new toy as part of that. So because of the way that it's gone, you've had this weird parts of the organization where certain departments are newer and more progressive and beefed up with the Cohen philosophy. Other departments may be lagging because you can't blow up an entire organization overnight. You can't get ready for the 2021 season when you're hired in November, you take over the team in November. Epler was hired right right around Thanksgiving in 2021. You know, and he had to in the middle of free agency that had already started, conversations had started. He had to jump right in, and then you had the lockout. So think about that. You also have the lockout and all this. So you're finally seeing as we settle into the end of 2023, you know, second full season of Epler's regime third full season of Cohen ownership, you're starting to see them address and build up the organization. And I think that the fact that they failed this year gave them the impetus to really go out and and do this now. You know, you already 
blew up the roster with some of the veterans. You, you, you got some kids coming in, very valuable assets. Epler talked about how all these guys would be considered first-round picks if they were in the draft this year. You know, one Gilbert was a first-round pick in the draft. So they really feel good about what they imported. But now it's about, you know, going forward. And I said this, Epler's whole tenure is going to be based on, even if he wins a championship at some point, his whole tenure, his whole job security is going to be based on the fact that they start developing young, some of it high ceiling, some of it, you know, roster components pipeline from their farm system. It cannot be the Mets going out and buying every single reliever, every single positional player. It's not sustainable, even with this owner, even with his wealth. So how do you do that? How do you become a player development pipeline that, you know, you want to be there with the Dodgers, you want to be there with the Braves, and so on and so forth? You got to have good people who know how to go out there and and get the job done. Now, uh, reading up a little bit about some of these guys and, and hearing what some of those that have covered the minor league system, some of the criticism about this system is that the coaches – and I think the way they describe Kevin Howard is somebody that, and I agree with this, uh, you know, goes out and works with each individual player with the skill sets that they have. That's the way I believe it should be. What a lot of these more analytically inclined front offices want to do is they want to fit the player into doing certain things and becoming a certain way. And if you're not that kind of player, they just cast you aside. So, you know, when you start to look at that, and I'm piecing together information that's outside here that's reported. You you start to see where this team is going. My biggest concern, and you see it across town with the Yankees, I mean, to the point where Hal Steinbrenner is looking to bring an outside consulting firm to figure out what the hell is going on, is that an analytics department comes in and takes over and makes their recommendations. But often I feel, because they cloak themselves in data and science, so to speak, that they're always immune to the accountability so if something doesn't work well the data said it worked it must be something wrong with the people must be something wrong with the player instead of saying did i interpret the data and put the real world situation in front of me and make the best educated decision from all angles now epler has positioned himself since he came in as a guy that's not just the data guy and he's from the gene michael tree gene michael's a scout at heart Sure, he used data, but if I had to, just from an outsider's perspective, take a guess, Gene Michael was 70% scouting, 75% scouting, 25% data. And I'm sure he had people, I mean, Brian Sabin, guys in that front office that have gone on for, have very successful careers, all were kind of the same way. Is Epler going to fall into that category? I guess we'll see. Epler comes across more and more as someone that leans heavily on data and less on scouting. And I personally, knowing where Cohen's background is, coming from the hedge fund world, the financial world, which is heavy data, you know, knowing his poker playing, you know, probabilistic DNA as a as a poker player, as a younger man, uh, you have to think that Cohen's okay with that. So whoever has been jettisoned out, my guess is they're not fitting into the data-driven approach that this organization wants to employ going forward. Now, the developmental lack thereof of a Brett Beatty and maybe a Vientos, guys that came with some promise. Did that play into it, especially with Beatty? I don't know. It's interesting. I, I have to tell you, 
um, Beatty is going to be in Alvarez, and not so much Vientos, because I always think there was questions about Vientos, but Beatty and Alvarez, for this uh, regime that just went out the door, uh, are kind of going to be the poster children to what what happens going forward, because whatever they did with these guys, and I think Alvarez has shown some potential, of course, he's, as you could expect with the ebbs and flows of the league figuring him out, he's working to figure them out back, so it's going to be this cat and mouse game, so to speak. We'll see if, if Alvarez can go to the next phase and say, okay, had success, had a pitfall, figured that out, had success again, and then now he's trying to get into you know, the next phase of his development. It's a constant adjustment. And those who are smart enough to learn the adjustments will be successful and maximize their talents. Those that don't, uh, you know, quite simply, will be out of the league. I mean, that's the way it goes. So we'll see what September brings. We'll see how that works. But really, these guys are the last vestiges of the development that, 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 you know, that comes under that group. Now you have your big pitchers, and, and that could have played into it where you know maybe, and Kevin Howard was a hitting guy, but maybe with some of this player development, they know they have some special talent on these pitchers. They've had talent that's been drafted over the last couple of years, and they're saying to themselves, we need to do it our way. Epler wants to do it his way. I think he did the right thing. He came in. He evaluated the organization. He addressed and attacked different parts of the organization that needed fixing right away, that aligned with winning at the big league level, because that was what of utmost importance. Remember, this was done backwards. Winning at the big league level and winning at a high level was priority 1A, 2A, 3A when Cohen, since Cohen has taken over. Up until July 31st of this year, that was the priority. That changed on July 31st, when Max Scherzer walked out the door. Maybe a couple of days earlier when Robertson walked out the door. Now it's about development, but it's also about winning. So now you have a situation where Epler's on MLB Network Radio. He's talking to Duquette. He's talking to Bowden, two former GMs. You can't BS them. But he's talking about a couple of things. Number one, they're looking to be in the starting pitching market. If I had to take a guess, when they talk about backing down on spending, and what really Epler clarified himself in the interview about was, and he goes back to Vegas and preseason probabilities, how, you know, whether it be Fangraphs, New York Post, Athletic, Vegas, has a range of what they expect the over-under. In the last couple of years, they've ranged the Mets from 85, 86 wins to up to 95 wins. Elite teams that are projected to be at the top of the sport. The teams that Epler has talked about and said, these are the teams that have a 17 to 18% chance of winning a championship. He doesn't expect to be looked at like that with Vegas because of some of the young players, some of the uncertainty, the fact that maybe they're not just going in to win the offseason. I've talked about this a lot. San Diego's done this a couple of times. The Mets now have done this. Just because in December, right before Christmas, you make a big splash, get a headline, and everyone feels warm and fuzzy while they're drinking their eggnog, that doesn't mean you win a championship. That means nothing, actually. It's fun off-season conversation. It warms your heart on a cold winter day, but it doesn't win you a championship. And the Mets have fallen into that. So maybe now they're looking at the roster. They see what they have. They see what they have coming up. And they're like, hey, we don't have to spend that kind of money to win. We've got to spend smartly. Off the bat, he talked about the need for more starting pitching. Despite the fact that Tyler McGill has pitched better, Peterson has pitched a lot better, I look at those guys at best coming into the spring as six to seven guys. You have no idea what you're going to get out of Buto. Yes, you have Lucchese, 
uh, as a potential uh, back in the rotation starter. He has shown a little bit. You know, he's not a guy that goes deep into games. But again, you have a lot of guys now, Lucchese, McGill, Peterson, maybe Daniel Reyes. But these guys are all going to, at best, 7, 8, 9, 10 on the, the depth chart. And then you have your young arms, your Christian Scott, your Tyler Stewart's, your Mike Vazels. You have all those things. Plus, you have to figure out who you have to put on the 40-man and who you don't because you have some young arms, some young positional players that may need to go on the 40-man so you don't lose them in the Rule 5 draft. And the way that teams tank now, they're, they're liable. You know, it's bigger risk than ever that somebody gets thrown on a roster. They have any semblance of talent. And, uh, you know, you'll lose them. You'll lose them. And, and, and then that's it. You know, it, uh, it, uh, you lose a good prospect. So all that stuff comes into play. Don't believe me. There was a catcher at one point that the Mets had. And I'm going to find his name because I, I just right now I can't think. I think it's Jesus Flores. Yes, Jesus Flores was the Mets. Let me make sure I got you the right. Uh, yes, Jesus Flores was a big-time prospect. Now, he fizzled out in the Mets organization, a catcher. In 2006, he was at high A. The Mets let him, uh, kept him unprotected. And he had a good year at high A, even though they didn't feel he was ready at 21. Nats put him on the roster all year. He wound up having a couple of good years with the Nats. So you don't want to see that happen. Um, so there's a lot of decisions that have to be made going forward. The Mets are going to have to be into the free agent market. I think Japan and Yamamoto is an option. I think Otani is a conversation all of itself. You know, you guys like, like Jordan Montgomery, some good, you know, you know, mid-tiered valued starters that could contribute at this point. So the Mets are going to be in that market. Now, as far as on the offensive side, you know, I think they'll be a little less aggressive on big names because you potentially do have a baby uh, in the lineup. Akun is a guy who uh, Epler feels could play all three up the middle positions, shortstop, second, and, and center field at a high level in the big leagues. I mean, think about that. A player that has speed, can play defense at three premium positions. I mean, that's valuable. The versatility is going to be a big thing. Um, you know, we'll talk about this in the next segment, but what other, is there any foray on this roster? Is a DJ Stewart somebody that could help? So I think, if anything, the Mets are going to be more inclined to go after the pitching market in free agency and play it a little bit more value driven on the offensive side because that's, uh, as crazy as it sounds, the easier side to fix. Now, as far as the whole president of baseball operations, I don't know who they're going to hire. Gammon says it's going to be in a couple of weeks. Everybody seems to think Stern, Stern, Stearns. And I know what some people have said. Hey, Mike, you discounted all the rumors about DeGrom to Texas and what have you. In the end, even with the DeGrom to Texas rumors that persisted throughout last year, it took money and the Mets basically handing DeGrom over to the Texas Rangers for that to happen. So just because everybody feels Stearns is the guy because that logic proof fits in the media world doesn't mean that's going to happen. And something tells me, and, you know, something tells me there's so much smoke, there's so much fire, it's so obvious that it's not going to happen. And then I go back ultimately, and I'm going to tell you from a, from a perspective, a management perspective, I don't agree with this. You should not have the person, the general manager, uh, report you know, help hire whose boss is going to be. Because I don't know how that's going to work. And I don't know how anybody who's coming into this situation with how hard this is, an owner that wants a first-class minor league player development pipeline while at the same time competing. And Epler said it again. He did not say, unless he's BSing the fans, and I really don't think Cohen would want that. 
Tony Cohen wants to BS the fans that they will be they will be a team that's expected to win coming out of spring training. They will be participants in the free agent market. He didn't say they'd be on in everybody. Doesn't mean they're going to go after Blake Snell and sign him until his late 30s or Julio Urias. I don't think those are the kind of free agents they're going to sign. But they're going to sign guys. They're going to sign even B-level guys. They're going to be, because of their spending power, they're going to be the favorites to land a lot of these guys because these guys are going to get very, very lucrative contracts for what may be just short-term plug the gap while they wait for some of their younger players uh, to be ready. So uh, I don't agree with that. I think that's how it's going to go. I do think you're going to see President Baseball Operation. But Cohen has also indicated that that person is not necessarily just going to be if he tires a team president. You know, he, you're assuming he's going to be president of baseball operations. That one might be more inclined to be about the business in total. I mean, think about in other areas. You know, Madison Square Garden back in the 90s, you had Bob Gukowski, who ran the Garden, and then the, the, they had the Rangers and the Knicks, and they had their, their, their sports people running those teams. Dave Check, it's a guy um, who wound up running Madison Square Garden. You know, maybe it's like that. Those guys come in, they're at bigger pictures. Is that what Stearns wants? You know, bigger picture? That doesn't mean they're going to be figuring out the trades. That's Epler's job. Yes, they're involved. Yes, they have their own say. It's still your boss. But day in and day out, they're not the ones making the phone calls. They're not the ones that are creating ideas. The ideas are brought to them. And you don't need David Stearns to go out and sign Shohei Atani. You don't. You don't need him to sign Josh Hader. I mean, just because somebody played for the Milwaukee Brewers, the Mets are clearly capable. Epler and whoever's there is clearly capable of knowing who from the Milwaukee system. If you want to trade Pete Alonso to Milwaukee, you got to go with the scout. Just because Stearns is there. Is Stearns even a player development guy? I mean, uh, you know, he sometimes, you know, Epler even said it. Epler comes from more of a player development background than even Stearns. He's got his scouts helping him or helped him during the deadline figure out which one of these prospects they acquired for Verlander and for Scherzer made sense from a variety of standpoints, including the analytics that are there. All of this, you know, in the end, is where this team is going. I don't like the process of hiring the, the president of baseball operations and keeping Epler, which makes me think that that individual is not just going to be about baseball, is going to be broader, and I don't think it's going to be Stearns, and I have no information on that. Um, I worry a little bit about the analytics department now being this monster that dictates everything without accountability. That's been my issue with analytics from the start. There is no accountability because they, they hide behind the data and science. Mets are going down this path. We knew they were going to go down this path under this owner. It has been successful for teams like Houston and the Dodgers, uh, Tampa. Although I will tell you, I think the hidden secret with a lot of these teams, maybe take the Astros out of it, who have been anti-scouting. I've heard Tampa is just as good at scouting as they are analytics. Um, you know, and their guys don't get a lot of credit for that. Same thing with the Dodgers. I think there's a tremendous amount of scouting in Atlanta and L.A. in addition to analytics being played. So hopefully the Mets employ more of a hybrid approach and hold the analytics department and those who run the analytics department very accountable to the results. Because I think that's what you're seeing across town with the Yankees and one of the biggest gripes from many members of the media that have been covering that team in a while, that at times they've gone so in on analytics that they've lost their way and there hasn't been any accountability in that front. So so that's where you're at. The Mets are cleaning up the pipeline. This all started because they couldn't necessarily build a team the right way. 
In a perfect world, Cohen would have bought that team in the middle of 2020 or early 2020 during the pandemic, or hopefully there would have been no pandemic. That would have been ideal. But if there was no pandemic, then maybe Cohen's not the owner. Again, stupid conversation to have now. Um, and, and build it up the right way or the traditional way. They're doing a lot of stuff backwards. Will it work? I guess we'll see. But make no mistake, anybody who thinks Billy Epler's out of here in the next month with a new president of baseball operations, even if that's the title, because I think it's going to be team president. I don't think it's just be president of baseball operations. I feel like that's where this is going to go, just by the way they're behaving. Or even if it's the president of baseball operations, their job is going to be so much bigger than this, the transactions, building an organization, building the structure of the organization and the overall team. Um, Epler's going nowhere. Epler's going nowhere, and his philosophies and his fingerprints are going to be all over this organization. And quite honestly, he's done a fairly good job uh, he did a great job at the deadline acquiring talent. Most of his free agents worked out. Uh, ultimately, this year will be marked by the bad pitching and Scherzer and Verlander's inconsistencies and age basically showing up overnight. A fear we had the minute that Scherzer signed, the same fear we had when Verlander signed, that you know father time could poke his head out at any moment with those guys. Remember Tom Glavin. That's what this season will be about. You're seeing that with Verlander and Houston with the inconsistencies. You're seeing some of the concerns with Scherzer, how, you know, the little aches and pains add up. And the other night, great six innings, giving up one hit, can't go back out for the seventh. They have to manage and monitor him. Those are guys that are really good, but ultimately right now, not guys that could bedrock an anchor rotation without the help of a number of other uh, high uh, potential starters. And, and the Mets don't have those guys. You know, Kodai Singa obviously has been a big surprise. From a free agent standpoint, he hit on everything last year, Epler. He's done pretty good this year. Um, I think the real criticism is, and I think this is not totally all his fault, is the player development pipeline hasn't worked. You don't come in in the middle of a lockout and make that uh, happen overnight. It just doesn't. So, Anyway, that's where we're at. That was the big news of the week. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, what do the Mets have on the roster? We know about Mauricio. We know about Beatty. We know about Alvarez. You know, exciting to see Mauricio come up here and hit the ball 120 miles an hour. But what else do the Mets have on this roster? And are there any names we could look at that could potentially help the Mets compete and win in 2024? You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. 
Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. A nice hand for Ronnie Mauricio as he makes his first Major League plate appearance. And a good year offensively at AAA Syracuse. Mauricio getting his first opportunity in the big leagues tonight. Backing up and it's over the head of Hernandez. Ronnie Mauricio has his first big league hit and it was a laser. 117 miles an hour off the bat. And a salute from Mauricio after a double to start the bottom of the third and his big league career. I thought that was Dela Cruz hitting that baseball like that. That was loud contact. That ball was squared up. Says to my family, I appreciate everything you've done for me. So now DJ Stewart tying run at the plate. DJ's hit eight home runs in his last 14 games. He gets this one in the air to deep center field. Back goes Rodriguez looking up at the wall. It's out of here! DJ Stewart with a three-run homer ties the game. The late season surge of DJ Stewart continues. A massive three-run homer to tie the game at three. Number 10 for Stewart is ninth in his last 15 games. We're back. You heard some highlights from this weekend. Ronnie Mauricio's first big league hit. And DJ Stewart all of a sudden has become uh, a miniature Babe Ruth here for the Mets over the last couple of weeks, especially in August. Um, Joining in the party and the fun. And brings me to my next segment here. And yeah, we'll get into the Pete Alonzo stuff and Doc and Daryl and everything here on this lazy Labor Day Monday. But... Everybody's going to talk about the obvious. The media is going to be looking at the obvious. And one of the objectives when the Mets blew this thing apart that I outlined at the trade deadline was, hey, you got to see what you have with Beatty, with Alvarez, with Vientos, with, um, you know, now Mauricio. You know, you don't know. You know, right now Alvarez, I think, has settled himself into where between him and Narvaez, you have yourself a pretty good catching tandem for next year. Alvarez has shown some tremendous skills behind the plate. You know he's going to hit for power. Whether or not he's going to be an impact hitter or a catcher who's fairly solid with some pop remains to be seen. Like I said earlier, it's a cat and mouse game. He's in a valley right now, Alvarez. Let's see if he can get out of it. You know, had an RBI single yesterday. So, you know, as far as the other guys, Vientos and Beatty, we don't even know if those are big leaguers. Like, you have to put them in. You don't know if they're big leaguers. And they haven't shown you anything but a flash here or there to in- indicate that they're big leaguers. And Mauricio's got 11 at-bats, so it- it's too soon to tell. But that's the obvious. That's obviously what the uh, the organization is looking for. Um, they have a lot of 4A that is littered the roster. Most of it is not useful. But there are a few that are worth taking a look at. Now, what's made the Dodgers and teams like even the Astros really good at what at, at what they do is they've, through their analytics department and maybe some of their scouting, they found these undervalued assets that nobody else was talking about. J.D. Martinez was one of those. Justin Turner. Max Muncie. And the Mets, for the most part, you know, they really haven't done that. Yeah, you had your Marlon Bird a few years ago that popped in. And, and you know, maybe Jonathan VR had a, a decent year, but he was an established player. You, know, you really haven't had a veteran come here and overperform, or somebody completely off the scrap heap overperform. And that's why DJ Stewart is so interesting, because DJ Stewart was a first-round pick of Baltimore. And you could 
just watching him, even in spring training. And I think he hit for the cycle in spring training, if I'm not mistaken. I remember watching a game, maybe against St. Louis, where he hit for the cycle. Um, the guy clearly could hit the ball hard. He has pop. You know, he's not the biggest guy in the world, but he's strong. You could tell, you could see that. And I went back and I looked at some scouting reports and did some research on DJ Stewart to say, okay, is this just fool's goal? Remember, remember the old saying, don't believe what your eyes tell you in March and September because they can lie to you famously. There are a number of 4A players that come up, have big Septembers or big marches in Port St. Lucie in the lazy, sleepy Grapefruit League, and they never, ever see the light of day of any success in the big leagues. So let's put that out there. I legitimately think DJ Stewart is auditioning for a job. And I think he has a great opportunity to be part of this team. You know, I know there's some debate. I've been debating on Twitter whether Vogelback's a free agent or not. I mean, I, I have him down as them controllable, that he's still arbitration eligible. I don't know if his contract with Pittsburgh that the Mets acquired negates that. It's possible. But at the very least, Stewart is a guy that can replace Vogelback and give you more versatility. I was skeptical about how good he was as an outfielder. He's actually been okay playing the corners. One of the criticisms of him throughout his development years in the minor leagues, whether it was Baseball Prospectus or some of these other websites, is that they felt his batting stance was hindering his ability to be a consistently good hitter and be a more complete hitter. They knew he had the power. And I know the Mets, in reading some reports up in Syracuse, I see, I'm going to say up in Syracuse. Should I say down in Syracuse? Up, I, you got to let me know. What do you guys want? Up in Syracuse, down in Syracuse, right? So um, you look at what uh, the numbers have been for Stewart in the minor leagues, and he started out April and May pretty slow. And, and remember, I think some I saw this stat. This is pretty crazy if it's true. I can't validate that it's true. That the average OPS for an average player in the international league and AAA is like 800. So everybody who's halfway decent is going to put up good numbers. But as the summer went on with DJ Stewart, his OPS in the minor leagues was up to 1,000. Now, I don't think he's going to come here, and I don't think you stole yourself a star. Right now, the way that DJ Stewart's playing with a 162 OPS plus, a 970 OPS, those are star-level numbers. Uh, I, I don't see that. Can DJ Stewart be the Mets version of Max Muncy? Somebody they completely pulled off the scrap heap that could pop you 30 home runs, even if he plays part-time, hit right-handed pitching, play a little corner outfield, left or right, DH. I don't know. I know the first base has been a position that has been thrown out there. I haven't seen uh, you know, he hasn't played really any first base here. He hasn't actually played any in the in the big league. So uh, I don't even know if that's an option. I would probably give him a glove and see if he can can do a little bit of that. Mets could use a backup first baseman a little bit when uh, Alonzo needs a blow. But can that can that be who DJ Stewart is? And I think he can. Look, you're staring down the barrel of an organization that does have some young players in AAA that potentially could compete for a backup outfield spot. You know, outfield has been a death knell for the Mets. That's why you saw the Kevin Pilar's and, you know, guys like Abraham Almonte and uh, uh, um, Rafael Ortega, these names that are littering in 4A in the roster because the Mets don't have outfield depth. I think Stewart can be better than that. I think he's shown some. Now it's, again, got to go around the league, but he's been around the league a few times. And one of the things that Epler talked about that's really interesting is how players need about 1,500. I've heard this before. This is an old saying. Need about 1,500 at-bats to really get themselves going as a big league player. 
plate appearances, I would say. So you really figure out what he's all about, right? So you look at a guy like Stewart, who over six years in the big leagues has about 700 plate appearances. And then you look at, you know, in the minor leagues, he's probably got another, you know, 1,500. So he's past that point, and he's starting to get to that point where he's either going to do it or he doesn't. But really that 1,500 at-bats or so is when a player starts to figure things out. And look, maybe something really connected with him in this organization. Maybe not everybody, you know, not everybody's bad at player development that works for the Mets. So I really think DJ Stewart is somebody to watch this September. And out of all the 4A players, I'm most bullish on him. Now, after that, Ortega, I know Buck likes him. You know, uh, Aruiz, these are guys that are gloves that come in. And, you know, I don't even know if you could say that these are guys that uh, sub in for two weeks effectively, maybe. You know, maybe an Ortega. These are 4A guys. There's nothing special, nothing exciting about that. Uh, and then you look at the pitchers. You know, Phil Bickford's a guy that right now the only value I see is that he pitches pretty much every day. He has not been good in ERA over six with the Mets. Uh, you know, a little bit better if you look at his peripherals, uh, you know, coming from the Dodgers organization. I'm sure they're going to try to potentially maybe look at him and see what's there. Uh, is he a free agent? Let's see if he's a free agent. I got to check that out a little bit. Uh, yeah, he's still under control. So, you know, you still have uh, Bickford still under control. You know, the same thing. You know, you look at a Jeff Brigham. He has been a little less impressive. Trevor Gott, you know, are there back, you know, you know, front end of the bullpen. There's no back end of the bullpen guys. So they're front end of the bullpen guys, you know, out there. We all know we're looking at McGill and Peterson and maybe Buto and Lucchese as starting depth. You know, that was part of the, the plan of what you have. But really with the 4A guys, I don't see anybody on the bullpen side that, oh, I you know, that's a, a diamond in the rough. You know, I guess we'll see. You know, Mets continue to sign a lot of relievers and arms that are analytically sexy, but for the most part don't know how to pitch. So we'll see about that. But to me, this the whole thing about September is going to be about DJ Stewart. I think DJ Stewart, especially now you're hearing Marte may have, you know, surgery potentially on his groin. I mean, you know you have Nimmo, okay, uh, for next year. So Nimmo, whether he plays a corner uh, or center field, you know you have Nimmo. You don't really have anybody for left. You don't really have anybody for right at this point. Uh, DJ Stewart could get himself a starting position. I think they're going to need to potentially, you know, I know Cody Bellinger's name has come up. That would be more signing an impact guy to a long-term deal potentially. Uh, you know, are there guys that can play the outfield on a little lesser contract, you know, maybe a, a two-year deal where they've got guys like Gilbert and Acuna. I mean, if Gilbert and Acuna are close, you know, you're going to need to move Nimmo to a corner. You're going to need... Uh, you know, potentially put Gilbert in center. You still got Marte on the contract for two years. You know, the more veterans you bring in on long-term deals, the more that could clog it up. Yes, I know you could trade those guys. And with the way the Mets have, you know, finances that create some flexibility, that's easier than in the past. But DJ Stewart's a cost-controlled guy that potentially you could keep around to play a corner, maybe play it every day. And help bridge the gap. And then look, maybe he becomes a fourth outfielder. Maybe he becomes a DH. You know, there are a lot of different things he can do. Or you know what? You just stole yourself an everyday, maybe not an all-star, but an everyday part of your lineup. So although I know you're all going to be looking at Mauricio, I know you're all going to be looking at Vientos and Beatty, and so am I, and Alvarez this September, the baby Mets. I hate that term, but the baby Mets. 
I really like to see if there's any foray, if there are any scrappy pickups that this team with their analytics department, these smart people that like to say they can find diamonds in the rough, have they found any of them? We'll see. DJ Stewart, to me, is the one that I'm watching the most. So, all right, let's take a quick break. When I come back, are you still bothered by the Pete Alonso trade talk? I know a lot of the fans are. I remember when I brought it up, it was, you know, preposterous. And I was, like, one of the first to say, hey, what about trading Pete Alonso? And now everybody's talking about it. Let's just calm down. Let me walk you through what's really going on. Because it's pretty easy to see and take away all the clickbait, all the articles that are going to be out there that are going to fill digital space between now and the day Alonzo's either traded, leaves as a free agent, or signs as a free agent. So we'll be back with that and more right after this. I can tell you that the team expects Pete Alonzo to be uh, still with them next year. This has been a subject of a lot of conversation over the past couple weeks because it did get out that there was some limited discussion between the Mets and other teams about Pete Alonzo with the trade deadline. The Mets are so adamant that those discussions uh, didn't advance. Uh, various reports have said that the Mets are uh, perceived as likely to trade Alonzo this offseason. And all I can tell you is I've learned never to say never in this business or rule anything out or speak in absolutes. But today, the Mets expect that they will not shop Alonzo and that Alonzo will be on the team next year. This is rooted in the fact that Steve Cohen means it when he says they want to feel the competitive team next year. They won't have the same free agent splashes necessarily in the offseason. They won't necessarily go into the year as uh, postseason or National League favorites. Uh, but they do want to stay competitive, and they see a guy with potential Hall of Fame level level power at first base is, is the way to remain competitive. He's not a guy that you trade unless you're doing a full teardown, and that's not what the Mets expect to do. Yeah, really promising news for Mets fans there. So, Andy, do you anticipate that the Mets and Alonzo could be working on a contract extension after the next offseason? That's a tougher thing to predict, and the Mets really don't know if they're going to be able to work out something long-term with Alonzo. They've talked. Obviously, they haven't reached an agreement, or we would have heard about it, but the next step really here is if, if Alonzo truly does play out the season, as the Mets currently expect him to do on their team, then he becomes a free agent. The Mets were comfortable doing this with Brandon Nimmo, with Edwin Diaz, and with Jacob deGrom. We have two examples there of players with whom they worked it out in free agency, and then one, of course, in deGrom where they didn't work it out. So... Looks like the most likely scenario is is Alonzo gets there. The Mets aren't going to go all out to sign him past what they consider rational. Uh, I'm not saying that Pete's going to demand some irrational contract, but that's really a subject looking like for about a year from now. Uh, and until then, Mets fans are more likely than not to just be able to enjoy Alonzo for one more year and then see how his free agency plays out. No guarantees for the long term here, uh, but in the short term, uh, I would take down the temperature on these trade rumors for sure. back so ever since right before the trade deadline and look i i don't like to just pat myself on the back but i did a segment you guys could go back and listen to in july trading pete alonzo and i outline why trading pete alonzo or at least exploring it is important because a guy who's elite like alonzo in his prime can maybe fetch uh, what i called a herschel walker type deal from a certain team now it's a little harder today's day and age. You know, teams aren't really willing to overpay because they're they're looking at data and metrics, and they know one player, even if he's a great guy and he's marketable with the home runs that are sexy and the home run derby, and he's and he's certainly a guy that could represent your club. 
you know, they're not willing to overpay, but you never know what's out there. So you have to put the player out there, especially if it gets you multiple high-end prospects, especially on the pitching side. Because pitching and defense is where this thing goes. Like, the Mets' season this year was undone. Yeah, they have issues on offense, and they would have had to maybe add a bat at the deadline if they were in contention, in addition to some other things. But the pitching, the starting pitching in particular, one, and then to a next degree, the bullpen is why this season was undone. So when I floated it out there, that was just me floating an idea out there. That's common sense. And then right after that, you had the, and I hate to use this term because that's all it really is. And you really have to understand that. The fake news of WFAN going out and reporting that the Mets, and Scherzer actually laughed at this when he came to town this past week, that the Mets clubhouse was toxic and that Pete Alonso was part of it. I'm like, where did you get that from? You know, maybe the clubhouse or maybe the energy around the team was off from the start. And we talked about that. That doesn't mean they hated each other or there was a problem. There was just something off. And there could be a lot of things that go into that. On the field, off the field, WBC pitch clock. uh, You know, so many things that this team was impacted negatively from and didn't push through and didn't accomplish on. And I don't think it's Pete Alonso's personality that caused that. So now that comes out. So now everybody's talking about the Mets need to trade Pete Alonso. What can they trade Pete Alonso with? And then the real kicker is, and this started, you've seen this a lot this past few weeks, what used to be this sacrosanct, um, you know, deeply sourced cover of waivers and trade talks that didn't happen. All of a sudden now, you're hearing Milwaukee talk about how they were close to getting Alonzo. The Mets dispute that. You know, things like that. You see players being put out on waivers and, and, and you know, like Carrasco, Harrison Bader, what the Angels did this past week, putting a bunch of their trade deadline acquisitions on waivers. You know, if those guys don't get claimed, now they wound up getting claimed, most of them. But if those guys don't get claimed, obviously it creates hurt feelings. I don't think people know what irrevocable waivers are. They're basically ways to put players on waivers and you don't want them back so if they get claimed they're gone but a lot of players get put on waivers I mean I was told years ago that you'd be surprised teams put all sometimes the whole roster on waivers but then they pull them back put them on irrevocable waivers a whole nother story altogether and a lot of times that's not reported because that's common practice now you have to be careful because you've got a lot of leaks now the Mets have been pretty good at, at not leaking this whole Carrasco on waivers thing got leaked um the Mets have been good at that and, and now, you know, it becomes a conversation. And I think it's somewhat unprofessional. Now, I think it's targeted. I think it's anti-Cohen, number one. I also think, number two, if Milwaukee leaking it, maybe have to do with the whole flirtation with Stearns, and maybe they don't like it. I'm wondering if that's coming from the owner at that point. But that doesn't end there. So then the next thing is, last weekend, and we didn't talk about it, Bob Nightingale comes out with a sourced article Uh, And talks about, well, you know, rival GMs expect Pete to be dealt. Okay, that's speculation. Now, there's some education behind it because the Mets were saying, hey, anybody who's not under contract, let's talk about. Billy Epler would be derelict in his duty if he didn't talk about Pete Alonso and the value that Pete Alonso could bring to the Mets in a trade. He has to do that. That's his job. Do you not understand that? Because I think a lot of people don't. They're all upset about it. Every player you have to talk about. There's no such thing really as an untouchable. Now, you could laugh and say, you know, you come into me asking me for, you know, 
to trade Acuna if you're the uh, uh, the Braves. But yeah, what do you got? You never know. I mean, you know, Joe DiMaggio for uh, what was it? Joe DiMaggio for Ted Williams almost happened. So anything could happen, right? Um, so then Nightingale comes out with that. I'm not criticizing Nightingale on this, but it's rival GMs and it's an opinion and opinions like, you know what? Then article comes out, Mets rebuttal, basically, hey, not as close. And, you know, Andy Martino, who's the only one, in my opinion, that really has a pulse on this, you know, said it best that the Mets are going to go out. Um, they've had conversations with Pete about what it would take to buy out his rest of his arbitration years and buy out his free agency. The number basically was at a point where the Mets weren't comfortable with. They've already gone to free agency with other guys like Diaz and like Nimmo and were able to compete and sign them. And, you know, it's something that they may do with Alonzo too. That doesn't mean that they don't want him long-term. They're not interested. And Alonzo has to understand too, it's a business and it might be in his best interest to drag this out. He may want to drag this out to free agency. Just because Austin Riley and Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna all signed these contracts to buy out their years, some which were significantly under market, doesn't mean Alonzo wants to do that. You know, one mark of Alonzo from when he came in and he talked about how he wrote that article, uh, excuse me, he wrote that uh, paper in college about being a big league ball player. Alonzo has put his chips to the center of the table and he has bet on himself and he's won. So I don't see why that would change. Now, would I like to sign him up this offseason and have some cost certainty for the roster uh, over the next, you know, I think it's going to take us seven years. And I talked about maybe it being $30 million. You know, we've talked a lot about Alonzo going back to the offseason about what a contract would would be. And I know that there are warts in his game and he's not Freddie Freeman and he may not even be Matt Olson. I think he's very similar, just right-handed version. But I think 25 to $30 million, and I think, you know, as he continues to home run after home run, and, and look, a lot of the fans are right. You cannot take the fact that he hits 40 to 50 home runs and does so where, you know, he was out for two weeks this year, so he probably would have been chasing 50 already. It's not like it's a lot of effort for him. He does it every year with that consistency. I mean, that is, this is a guy that if he stays healthy, you know, is going to hit 500 home runs. In his career, whether he's an, a Hall of Famer or not, he's going to hit 500 home runs if he stays healthy. Because at the very least, that power uh, for the next five years, you know, is going to be around. You sign him to another five years, you put another. You know, you're looking at already uh, 350 home runs. You know, hitting into his mid 30s, and then you know what? You stick around for another three, four years, and maybe you get you know close to that 500. So he's going to hit 500 home runs, even if he averages 30 a year, and I think that's low over a five-year span. You know, it's possible that he's going to be much higher than that. So, you know, this is a guy that doesn't grow on trees. You want to put him in context to Mets history, we're going to talk about Strawberry on the way out in the final segment. But runs created, Pete Alonzo is at 136. That's third in Mets history through this morning. That's just behind Strawberry and John Olrood, who was only here a couple of years. I mean, John Olrood, I mean, the guy that we could talk about, tremendous run creator, tremendous offensive player, you know, was only here three years. You know, that's higher than Piazza. That's better than Cespedes. That's better than uh, Keith Hernandez or Carlos Beltran. You know, as you go through the the annals of Mets history. Um, so this is, you know, maybe not the most complete player. Maybe he's not Beltran and Wright on both sides of the ball. But he could be going down as the best offensive player, best run creator. Maybe not offensive player, best run creator in Mets history. 
And when you start to look at the totality of his career, I mean, he's already played for the Mets longer than Olerud played for the Mets. So, you know, you don't want to just throw this guy away. But let's be fair. To be angry about how this is going down or to think the Mets' lack of a contract is something that uh, indicates that he's on the way out. I think Cohen and Epler talked about this on MLB Network Radio. They have been in contact with uh, Alonzo's agent. You know, I know Cohen spoke to Alonzo when I think he was in Kansas City a couple of weeks ago. Maybe under the prior ownership, which didn't do a good job of connecting with the players, you'd have some concerns. I have no doubt in my mind that the Mets have been transparent, open, and honest with Alonzo and Alonzo's agent. And just because there aren't reports, you know, doesn't mean it's not happening. Now, we don't know who leaked some of this stuff about Alonzo trade rumors. Maybe it was on the Alonzo camp. I doubt it. But none of this that's gone on with Alonzo over the last 30 days is surprising. And it's common practice in baseball. It really is. I mean, putting guys on waivers, which I don't, not saying that's what happened with Alonzo, but that could happen at some point to see who would be interested. You really don't need that. Uh, seeing what his trade value was. You know, negotiating a contract to get the best deal. Let's remember, he gets a seven-year deal into his mid to late 30s. Right-handed power had replaced first base that, you know, his legs go. Look at what's going on with Marte. His legs go. His power goes. You know, he's one slider away from breaking a bone in his wrist, and that's game over for power. You know, you got to be careful here if you're the Mets. you got to make sure you measure twice, cut once. And it, historically, they have not been signing at least on the Cohen in the first three years, been signing their young players before they hit free agency. They've been comfortable going into free agency and playing that game. Now, it's stressful for the fans because, look, you go to free agency, anything can happen. You know, Yankees come to you and throw you a boatload of money, and you're like, hmm, I kind of like that. I don't want to give the Mets the last right of refusal. But remember something very, very interesting, because I think I saw Dave Lennon in Newsday talk about it, and it was a headline which basically said, until this is resolved, These questions are going to remain. Sure, until Alonzo signs on the dotted line, it is a fair conversation, speculative or otherwise, to say, hey, what could they get in trade value? Will he be here past 2024? Of course. And every opportunity. You know, yesterday he hit a couple of home runs. He's got 41 for the year. Banner day for Pete at Citi Field. The question is going to come up. Could this be the last time he does this? You know, are they going to trade him there? Next year, you know, no contract going into the season. Let's say the Mets are not in contention at the deadline. You know, that conversation is going to come up. So buckle up. And if the Mets have decided, and I think you'll know pretty quickly into the offseason how this is going. Because you have to go to arbitration one more time if you don't agree to one-year deal. If they agree to one-year deal, this guy's going to free agency. They go to arbitration, then he's definitely going to free agency. I don't see the Mets doing that unless Pete's totally unreasonable about his request. And, you know, I really think that you know, that's where the inevitability of this is going. They did, they, they did this before. They did it with the best closer in the game. They did it with a guy that was, you know, probably one of the top leadoff hitters in the game, albeit he was injured and he hasn't accomplished as much as Pete. They did it with Nimmo. Uh, you know, they did sign McNeil, so there is precedence before free agency McNeil, but I think that's a different level contract, a much simpler contract. You know, you're talking about a contract with a guy that may want to become AAV, the highest AAV of any first baseman ever. 
And we don't know how many years he wants. You know, he might want double-digit years, and now you're getting into a whole different conversation. So uh, I guess the point here is this. I really don't know why, other than, look, it's great for the show. It's great for, you know, you guys to entertain yourself. I don't know why we're, like, talking about this in a negative way. This is common practice for anybody hitting free agency. Anybody. And over the course of time, if we ever had a log of what players were talked about in trades or what players were put on waivers, your hair would curl. You don't think the Mets ever talked about trading Wright and Reyes at some point, even before they became stars? You know, I think that the, the rumor was that Phil, Steve Phillips was offered Jose Cruz Jr. for Wright when they needed outfield help. I mean, who knows how true it is? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know that potentially were, you know, deals on the table, guys put on waivers that we have no idea about. So it's common. Don't panic about it. Because now and today, in the age of Twitter, in the age of 24-7, 365, where everything becomes news, everything becomes a headline, just because that's the way we live now doesn't mean the sport or the practice has to change or that it's any more or less damaging. The reason why it's damaging now is not because it's a bad practice, because the player finds out about it. And in the past, it probably never made it to the media and to the fans, but players aren't stupid. They could talk. They know. So you have to be so much more careful as an organization now because things leak out. Look at Carrasco. No surprise he got put on waivers. Nobody wanted him. You know, Carrasco's not a dummy. He sees his ERA close to seven. That's common sense. Now, do you have to go to the player and say, hey, we still support you. We still love you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's for Buck. That's what Buck managing the clubhouse is all about. Front office is there to, you know, evaluate and really distance themselves and put themselves in a position where they're as neutral as possible and have as little emotion as possible. So, anyway, that's the thought on Pete Alonso. Let's not get carried away with it. It's, you know, good practice what the Mets are doing. I think you take a lot of the rumors as opinions, well-informed, well-sourced opinions, but just like you, just like me, everybody has an opinion. And anytime rival GMs or rival executives make an opinion on what the Mets are going to do, they don't know. Worry about your own team. Really, worry about your own team. Just like nobody wanted to work for Steve Cohen. Remember that? Nobody wants to work for Steve Cohen. I think you'll have people who want to work for Steve Cohen. Now, maybe they don't like the structure that Steve Cohen is setting up, but they'd be, you know, they've seen what he's been able to do with the pocketbook. And uh, instead of reading a book about Wall Street that came out a few years ago and making your uh, assumptions, just look at what he's done and, and talk to those who work for him. You know, Scherzer just spoke glowingly about his experience with the Mets uh, across the league. So, all right. Let's take a quick break. We're going to wrap up. You're listening to Talking Mets Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We welcome in Keith Hernandez to the show. And Keith, we each have two questions for you on White Gooden and Daryl Strawberry's jersey retirements to come next season. Some words that we've been hearing over the past couple of days to describe these two players are electric, eye-catching, must-see baseball. So, Keith, what was different about the days when Doc was pitching and how special was it when Straw came up to bat? Well, I mean, those uh, that 80 team was uh, pretty uh, electric. Uh, Daryl was a prolific power hitter, uh, also steal a base. Uh, Doc was, you know, on his way to to being the one of the great pitchers of all time and was so fun to play behind. And I, the fans just gravitated to both of them. They were really 
uh, stars. Uh, there's no question about it. And uh, they were very prominent uh, on our ball club and our winning cha- that championship and the great years we had in the 80s. And um, I think they're very deserving. I'm very happy for both of them. of the numbers of uh, Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden, well-deserved. And going into 2024, you know, we're going to do more. I think I'm going to do some stuff this offseason about them. You know, obviously, as it gets closer, uh, we had a chance to have, and I don't know if you guys have listened, but during the pandemic, when there was no baseball, Doc came on with me and talked about his career. One of the first few athletes to appear on my old WGBB show back all the way in 2007, Daryl Strawberry came on uh, after uh, leaving a Subway Series game for about 10 minutes or so, and we chatted with him. So, you know, there was, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of exposure to these guys. And, and look, um, it's going to be easy, and it's proper to talk about what if. We know what if. We know all that they left on the table with the drugs, the alcohol, the bad behavior, you know, things that, you know, if they look back, you know, Daryl wanting to go to Hollywood to be in, in films, which Frank Cash and talked to me about you know how Daryl's agent was really pushing him to LA back when they were negotiating you know to Doc and the decisions that Doc made and a lot of what is also underreported which Doc had a capsule issue in his shoulder when his shoulder went Doc's career started to decline and that has as much to do as the drugs and the off the field I mean certainly off the field would have consumed them but the shoulder which nobody talks about he talked about on his on, on our show and how it impacted his curveball and, and his ability to really execute his pitches at the same level after a shoulder injury and after the 1991 season. You know, capsule injuries are serious, and, and very rarely do pitchers come back and ever pitch the same, and Doc's numbers decline. But, you know, putting that all aside, I think it's proper to retire their numbers. I know there'll be some debate within the, the community about that. I think it's long overdue. We know all the things they did wrong, but I, I'll tell you the truth. Daryl has gone on to clean up his life, and he's you know doing his thing as a minister. Doc, uh, you know, continues to spend a lot of time around City Field. Uh, you know, it's taken him a little longer to get his life cleaned up. I believe he was telling Joel Sherman and John Heyman he's four years sober, so good for him. It's really good to hear that Doc's in a good place right now, and you know he's trying to contribute to the game and to life in uh, you know the back half here, trying to figure out how he can you know give back to a game that you know, gave him so much and that maybe in his prime when he was playing, uh, he shortchanged himself. He certainly shortchanged himself a lot. But you want to just look at this statistically. You know, we were just talking about Pete Alonzo here. But, you know, to this day, um, and you want to take Olerud out, who was only with the Mets three years. I mean, Strawberry's still the gold standard in run creation uh, for, uh, you know, Mets offensive players. And he's behind David Wright, who, you know, took the mantle from him as the best offensive player when you talk about wins above replacement and all that stuff. But he's right up there. Uh, you know, there's you know nobody in, uh, in Mets history, maybe other than Mike Piazza, that had the power that, you know, he displayed. You know, Alonzo, of course, now, and maybe Cespedes, but, you know, over the long haul. And, look, Daryl, just like A-Rod, just like certain other polarizing New York athletes, he was a lightning rod. He was what w- when WFAN came into existence, you know, Strawberry was a topic that would be the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, he was from a talent and from a personality, 
the best player in baseball. And then you look at Doc, and you know to this day, other than Tom Seaver, look, Harvey tried to come at Doc's numbers, and Degrom probably would have if he had stuck around and stayed healthy in this last contract they just signed with with Texas, may have overtaken him. But even when you've seen guys like Degrom and Harvey and even Syndergaard for a little bit put up stretches that you know there'll always be numbers that come out that put him in that pantheon with Gooden. Other than Seaver. Doc has been the gold standard, the next gold standard, the next tier of great Mets pitchers. So yeah, he deserves it. He's not Seaver, and I don't even if he had stayed healthy and pitched a while, I don't think he ever would have been Seaver. Seaver was special on another level. But you know, we could talk about Degrom, we could talk about Kuzman, who had you know his number retired, and you know the Syndergaards uh, and the Harveys for a hot minute. But Doc is. Outside of Tom Seaver, the gold standard of pitching in the Mets organization. And then if you look at them in terms of their time, let's just go to the era when they played together, 83 to, uh, to 1990. You know, Strawberry's, you know, just around the top 10 in offensive players, you know, top five or six in home runs, you know, most home runs actually, should I say, during that period, you know, in terms of, of war and OPS plus, you know, right there in the top 10, you know, for pitchers, you know, war, Doc Gooden's number four, Clemens, Saberhagen, Viola ahead of him during that period. Uh, so Roger Clemens, Hall of Famer, by the way, should be Hall of Famer, not a Hall of Famer, but should be a Hall of Famer, uh, you know, is really the only one in that era. You know, Saberhagen had some good runs, and obviously Viola had some really good runs, but, you know, Doc was probably right there as the best pitcher of that era. When you look at stuff, Doc was the best pitcher, you know, maybe one in 1A with Clemens from that period of 83 to 90. So when you look at that, you put it in context of where they were in the league. You put it in context of what they meant to the Mets, where their statistical standings are with the Mets, what they meant in terms of that 80s dominant team, what they were in terms of um, the kind of figure they were around the organization and in New York sports during that time. They absolutely deserve to be, uh, you know, they already inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame, but to have their numbers retired. So it's come full circle. You know, Keith, number retired, Doc and Daryl. I know there's some debate about Carter, what's going to happen with Carter. I'm sure David Wright, as he gets further away from the playing field, his number will be retired. I also think it's important for the Mets to spread these out because you don't want to just start doing these days and these honors and cheapen them. And I think that that's something that I've heard that they have taken into consideration. So Doc and Daryl, congratulations, a week late. Uh, I'm looking forward to having more conversation about their careers, learning a little bit more if there's things to be learned about them. We'll probably replay that doc interview at some point during the winter when it's a cold winter day and you know there's nothing else going on and the hot stove is cold and we just want to remember some good Mets memories when uh, we're Jones for baseball when there's none really on the uh, horizon in the middle of the off season. So there's that. Uh, you know, again, I hope everybody has a great Labor Day. You know, the unofficial end of summer. Um, we're going to continue throughout the month of September. You know, we laid out, uh, as I said, a couple of weeks back after the deadline. And then again today, some of the things we're looking at, the kids, you know, are there component players on the roster that we can look at and maybe September could give us a, you know, hope that they can round out the 2024 roster and provide value, especially as the Mets are trying to be a little bit more value-driven this offseason potentially and potentially may need as many dollars as possible to invest in a big free agent. If an Otani is on the roster, you're going to need cost-controlled, uh, productive players up and down the roster. Can some of these 4A guys 
that the Mets have pulled off the scrap heap do that. We talked about DJ Stewart, maybe some bullpen arms. So we'll see. We'll continue to watch that. And then I think, you know, Mauricio is going to be an interesting topic because even more so than Alvarez, I feel, Mauricio has this uh, fan attention. Maybe it's because he's tall and lanky and he hits the ball hard and, and maybe because fans just have been pining for him so much that he's become somewhat of a folk hero to... Uh, I don't know if it's a majority of fans, but it's you know certainly the younger fans that frequent social media. So you know, is he overrated? Uh, you know, we'll see. You know, a pretty good first ten at bats, hits the ball hard, shows no fear. I look at him. The first impressions is he's an energy player. The energy's good around him. He's going to be good. I think he's a guy that's going to go into prolonged slumps because of his lack of discipline. I think that's obvious. I mean, Keith Law loosely contributed him. Uh, excuse me, Keith Law loosely. Uh, compared him, contributed, geez, compared him to um, Alfonso Soriano. You know, you, l- let me tell you this, and, and I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. Soriano, if you could get, if you can get uh, Alfonso Soriano, if you could get, I'm not talking vintage 50 home runs Soriano. If you could get the Soriano that, uh, you know, potentially hit 20 home runs, hit about 280, uh, you know, 850 OPS plus, and he plays a couple of positions, geez. I mean, Soriano hit over 400 home runs in his career. I don't know if Mauricio's that kind of guy because Soriano had 40 home run power. Um, Mauricio could go hit about 275, 280 with 20 home runs. And, uh, you know, right now we'll see if he can hit both sides of the plate as a switch hitter. You know, to me, that's a very valuable piece. He plays second, makes you wonder where McNeil is going to go and, uh, and, and whether McNeil's future is in a corner. And I think he plays a really good corner. I think McNeil plays a really good right field. I wouldn't have any problems with him being in the outfield. Um, you know, gives you some options as you try to round up the roster. And I think they're going to have to spend a lot on pitching this offseason. So they're going to need every dollar to invest in pitching if they're going to be competitive. So the more cost-controlled, uh, useful offensive players. Not, not everybody has to be an all-star, but to be very good offensive players. Um, you know, that to me is important if the Mets are going to compete in 2024. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this Labor Day edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and do the show on, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. And you can get me on Instagram, talkingmetspodcast.com. No of course, I want to thank the good folks from the fan side of podcasting network for I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Meet the Mets. 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 Head for the park and greet the Mets. Hot dogs, green grass, all out of shade.
credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.